This is Join the Dots, the podcast about the impact of everyday choices for our health, wallets and planet. Welcome to our new series, The Mystifying Expertise. While making our regular podcast, we are connecting with experts in many fields, some familiar, some less so. In this series, we'll learn about what they do and how they see the world. Welcome to our latest episode of Demystifying Expertise. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Yoka Van Winsom, a coordinating advisor for sustainability in the environment for the Reichtwaderstraat, roughly the Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. Hello, Yoka. Hello, Sabine. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us. So, can you tell me, what would you describe your field as? When I was young, I was a biologist, ecologist, soil ecology, and I did a lot about ecotoxicology. And then um, it was a lot of soils and soils and soils, and I changed jobs and it became knowledge for climate adaptation. And now I'm covering the broad field of sustainability. At my work, the the emphasis is mainly on uh, carbon dioxide reductions. So climate mitigation. I think over the years I went from very narrow, although biology is certainly not very narrow, (laughs) to something very broad. And sometimes I think my field of expertise is just about connecting people and connecting pieces of knowledge. Everybody I talk to seems to have a different definition of the term sustainability. What's your definition? Oh, really, Sabine? (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a real definition of sustainability. And actually, uh, sometimes it helps not defining it because then you start arguing about definitions. And uh, in my whole career, about 40 years, I have learned that you shouldn't talk too much about definitions because you lose the real debate about what you should do or what you should study or whatever. But if you want me to give some kind of definition about sustainability, I think it is everything we have to do or we should do in order to keep on going without damaging things so much that the future generations won't have the same standard as we have. That's a good definition. Now, I think your idea that sustainability should not be too tightly defined is different than the question of how we evaluate whether a specific thing or practice is sustainable. And if that is left too loose, it can hide a variety of sins. So what do you think about that dynamic tension between a loosely defined term but tightly defined criteria, perhaps? What I said in the beginning is that my main job is to connect people, but also to convince people that they have to work in a certain direction. And for my work, that's not a direction I defined myself, but it comes top down into the organization. And I have to help and support people to do the right thing. And if I start a discussion about what it really is, then it's not going to work. 
Hmm. Apart from that, of course, it's good to have some kind of definitions about sustainability. And sometimes it's really hard to figure out what to do because the different things we should do clash with each other. Uh, so we have all these nice methods in, in science about uh, life cycle assessments and environmental impact assessments. And I don't know what uh, we all need to use them to really know what we need to do. And still there is, you know, there is such a big debate about sustainability. If you look at the energy transition, is it really necessary? And then once people are convinced, as a house owner, you need a lot of money to make your house energy neutral. Not many people have that money. And in the Netherlands, especially, it's a big debate about windmills that everybody thinks they are important, but nobody wants to have them <laughs> because they make noise and they create shadow. And, you know, I live in a small country, so competition for space is awful. And still, we know we have to do something. So... Um, I'm getting away from your question, but anyway. <laughs> I, I want to go back a little. You talked about starting out as a biologist, then an ecologist, an ecotoxicologist. For our listeners, what are the differences between those? Yeah, I think biology you can define as a study to life on Earth, <laughs> to put it in a very broad <laughs> way. And biology is also a study about systems. Everything is connected to everything. And we have systems in our body and we have ecosystems. So it's a study about everything from the bacteria in your gut till the tropical rainforest or the oceans. And then ecology is especially about these systems and uh, how these systems operate. For instance, how uh, trees grow, how the leaves fall in autumn how bacteria and fungi and, and animals are decomposing the leaves and how the nutrients from the leaves go back to the soil and the tree next year takes the nutrients up again. Well, that's ecology for me, <laughs> at least. And then ecotoxicology is the study of how toxic chemicals influence all those processes. And, uh, well, there's lots to say about ecotoxicology. It might range from tests with organisms, how they react on these toxic substances so that are controlled experiments in the lab and you can even derive some ideas about how much of these toxicants you can handle in the environment. But it can also be about um, a contaminated site where you want to study or have to study uh, how bad it is and whether it needs to be cleaned up or you can do something else. So do you see that path between fields as an expanding or a narrowing focus? I think I've been expanding all the time. And actually, I knew quite soon when I was studying biology, I really forced myself to do a topic on uh, real lab research with these uh, test tubes. Actually, that work is a lot about washing up the glass tubes. <laughs> <laughs> same with chemistry. <laughs> yeah, same with chemistry. And then I decided that I love biology and I love science, but I really want to do something that matters to the society. So I quickly turned to something more applied science. And I think ecotoxicology is an applied science. So maybe ecotoxicology was a bit of a narrowing. But after that, I worked for a committee that gave scientific advice to the Ministry of Environment about soil policies. And then suddenly the whole field of soils was relevant for me. So agricultural soils, 
the use of fertilizers, pesticides. Here again, you have these potential toxic or nuisance substances. And then it broadened up. My topic for my PhD was ecotoxicology. And when I finished my PhD, I started to work for this committee and then it broadened up. It was the whole field of everything, soil chemistry, soil ecology, uh, physics, etc. So then I became more general. So I know a little about a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes that feels awkward because as a scientist, you are trained to know a lot about a little. And um, I noticed that dealing with people and the way you talk about your subject became more important than what I was talking about. And that has been a very long transition So is it at this time you started looking at things through the lens of ecosystem services? Mm -hmm. For our listeners, what are ecosystem services? Ooh, that's also a matter of definition. (laughs) This is a quiz. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we all live in an ecosystem, in a natural environment, and ecosystem services are the benefits we get from ecosystems. Maybe that's still fake, but it is about food, it is about feed, but it is also processes like pollination and uh, a good soil quality and uh, prevention of erosion and some health benefits. We have harmful substances in the air and ecosystems can filter them out and ecosystems filter rainwater when it goes into the groundwater and therefore we can use the groundwater without a lot of filtering as drinking water, things like that. So why does soil matter? Aha. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> I have a prejudice because I studied soils, but uh, soils are very important. Soils give us food and feed and materials. They filter, you can shelter in it. They sequester carbon, which is very important nowadays with the climate change. Uh, there is an enormous amount of carbon in soils. And that is in some kind of interchange with the air. And the more carbon uh, we release from the soils into the air, the worse it gets. Actually, we should increase the, the amount of carbon in soils. And we haven't figured out yet really how to do that. And a lot of carbon is stored in the soils in the form of oil and uh, peat and things like that. So when I look out the window, one gets the impression that soil dirt is everywhere. But soil is a precious and limited resource, isn't it? How is that? Well, soil's origin from rocks. So the big mountain ranges like the Alps, due to the weather, there is a lot of erosion in the Alps. So the fine material is brought down by the rivers and the snow and ice. So it all ends up as sediment and it sorts itself. And in the end, uh, you get layers of this material. And when it's, um, the time has gone over it, it uh, changes into soils. And these soils may differ in, depending on the parent material, it may differ in quality. And there are other ways of forming soils. For instance, here in the Netherlands and in the UK, we have received a lot of this erosion material from rivers. So our soil is very deep. But in some other countries, there is a very thin layer of soils, and it just depends on the conditions and where it is situated. 
so it's all about soil formation and where you are. But if you go outside to look at the different layers of the soils and look at how deep it is. I know in the UK, especially in these limestone areas, you have a very thin layer of soils. So you can't put a plow in that. You just can keep sheep on it. So soil is very precious. And also it takes a long time before you get a proper soil. So if you destroy the soil, for instance, because it's so dry or so intensely used that it blows away by the wind. So there is a saying that the nation that destroys its soils destroys itself. I can talk hours about soils, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I can relate. I, I love mud. Mud is my life. So how did you get from your soil committee to where you are now? I work for the soil committee about 26 years, which, wow. which is a ridiculous long time. But then this committee was connected to the Soil Protection Act in the Netherlands. And um, there is a big movement when it comes to environmental laws. And so they are preparing an environment act, which is combining all those different pieces of legislation for the environment. And people at the ministry thought that would be a good idea to quit with this committee because they felt that everything about soils had been said and done and that we were more or less ready. So they put the committee to sleep, so to say, which means that I lost my job. And I found that very difficult. At the same time, I felt that if your main client is not motivated anymore to ask you questions, then what is the purpose of your work? The good thing was that I was allowed to look for another job within the ministry. I moved to the Department of Knowledge, Innovation and Strategy. You know, the Ministry of Environment changed into the Ministry of Infrastructure and the Environment, and then it moved into the Ministry of infrastructure and water management. So environment was lost in the name. So I started to work for the Department of Knowledge, Innovation and Strategy at the Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. And there I had to find some kind of topic within this department. And I did two main things. I helped my colleagues who were working on climate adaptation I helped them with the knowledge infrastructure on climate adaptation, especially for municipalities and water boards, because they are important partners in taking climate adaptation measures. That was one. And another major project I did was about the knowledge infrastructure in general for municipalities and water boards and provinces. You know, in the Netherlands, we have a a number of national knowledge institutes and the agenda for these institutes is set by the ministries. But a lot of policies have been decentralized. So municipalities and provinces and water boards have a lot more to say about how we deal with the environment. Therefore, they need more knowledge. So the idea was and still is that these other local authorities need knowledge from those national institutes. So some kind of cooperation was necessary or improvement of this knowledge infrastructure. 
And then we started with some kind of communities of practice, knowledge communities with people from all these different levels of authorities to talk about what is needed and how the knowledge can be spread in the best way. What does your typical day look like? I work at the moment in a small team. And so we meet every morning a quarter of an hour. And nowadays it's all online, but it used to be near the coffee machine, of course. (laughs) (laughs) course. And then uh, we talk uh, about the day and the things we do and whether we need help from somebody else or things that bother us or just being happy. So just we have some kind of contact and then we move on. And for me, it means that I check my email and then I often have a lot of meetings team meetings where we discuss progress, strategies, what are our plans, how do we need to move forward. I'm also chair of an other team, uh, so I have meetings with them. And then at this position, I started seven months ago and I still need to get to know a lot of people, which is rather hard in a time of COVID. So I phone a lot, I talk a lot, uh, I prefer to meet uh, through Teams or Zoom because then you can see people. And uh, I work on a couple of documents I have promised. And now that I'm growing in my job, I'm quite often phoned by people or approached through email and they have questions about sustainability. And I try to do my best to answer the question and to help to connect them with people who are far more specialized than I am the generalist about sustainability. But I know who the people are they need to approach for that. So you're the hub and then you send things out to various... I'm the hub, yes. Yeah. So what keeps you in this? What's the most interesting thing about your job? Yeah, and therefore I think I need to explain uh, a bit about uh, my last change of jobs, which was uh, seven months ago. Uh, I worked for this Department of Knowledge, Innovation and Strategy, but at the ministry it's a custom to ask people to look for something else after about five years or something. Well, then I had a really, um, I thought, well, the next job might be the last job I do before I go with retirement. So I made some decisions about what I wanted to do and the logical step would have been to get more involved in policy departments. But I didn't want that. I have been dealing with the policy departments for a very long time and I thought I'm too impatient, I think, to work there. I want progress and policies in every country. You have the government, you have ministers. Uh, For a long time, we have had ministers who who are not very uh, moving forward if it comes to environment and sustainability. And that's the only thing I want to say about it. And I thought I need to do something else which gives me energy. I started to look for another position. And then I looked at this Rijkswaterstaat because, you know, when you are working on policies, it's rather abstract. It's all paperwork and it's fancy wording and it is being sensitive about things. But then When you move to a place where they are discussing how to work on uh, the water framework directive projects where they have to improve the quality of the river or when you are thinking about a new maintenance contract for uh, the floodplains of the rivers or you have to make a new bridge or to 
do a, a major works on bridges or motorways or whatever, then everything comes together. It's not anymore about climate change only or about soils only. It's the combination of everything. And I find that very interesting because there you really need to balance the different interests and the different topics and the different goals you have. And a ministry is very, at least in the Netherlands, is very sectoral, you may say. And when you do the work, then you have to take everything into account at once. And that, I find, gives me a lot of energy to to work with people and to talk about how are we balancing all those different things. And what I also find very attractive of my present job, what keeps me going, is that it's in my own neighborhood because the office is three kilometers from my house and I live in a beautiful part of the Netherlands and the work is about my real environment. And that's something I really like. What difference do you think your profession makes? I think at the moment the difference I can make... I don't want to say that I make it because I just started, but I can make, is that we are going to work more in a sustainable way. And that doesn't mean anything. I agree with you when you don't define sustainability. So the goal is to have a very strong reduction of carbon dioxide emissions from the works we do. So that's about uh, putting asphalt on the roads and uh, the traffic we uh, initiate in our works and the, the shipping movements and whatever. So I try to help people to make sure that that's included in all the things we do. So that's the difference I'm trying to make. So it's rather exciting to have the opportunity after years in more abstract policy and science to be at the coalface and try to make these concepts really work yeah. to solve real problems and engage with, as you say, cross-sectoral groups. Yeah. What do you think your biggest challenges are in that job? Well, in my department, there is a bit of a clash between the frontrunners and these the average people because the frontrunners say you are you're doing nothing and the other ones they say yeah but but we are trying but we don't know what to do and by the way you don't have money for this so <laughs> so my challenge is uh, not to lose the frontrunners and to get movement into uh, the other people in your job how much do you face the active not just maybe the hesitant or indifferent, but the aggressively anti-progress, the climate deniers, the anti-regulatory people that we see to be quite vocal in some countries. Are those an issue in your experience? They are. Well, there are even some people within my company or in my department, I should say, it's not really a company, it's the department of the ministry. There are people who think that it's irrelevant and we shouldn't do that at all, or in the best, they think uh, we do the wrong things. Mm -hmm. But it's the policy of the department, we have to do it. And so I step in at a good moment, there is money for it, and there are internal papers saying we have to work sustainable. So that's the easiest part. But as we maintain large areas in the Netherlands, 
we also have to cooperate with all kind of other authorities and stakeholders and people. And sometimes it's a problem, especially we have a big nitrogen crisis in the Netherlands and that affects especially the farmers. So farmers feel very uh, threatened in the Netherlands. And I'm really worried about these groups that threaten politicians, they threaten journalists, they threaten scientists. It's a lot of turmoil in the society at the moment. And of course, that affects my work too. So is there something about the way of thinking or the way you have learned to frame problems that you think might help people make better or different choices? Of course, I knew this question was coming, and I've been thinking. I, I have well, I've been thinking about it. What What is the major lesson I learned uh, over the past, let's say, forty years? You know, science is rather competitive. It's about money, getting funding, who is most clever, who is getting the professor's positions. And when I work for the policymakers, I learned that that's really a weakness of science. Because if you have 10 scientists, they all have another definition, another idea, a better idea. And as long as scientists don't speak with one voice to politicians, and politicians say, well, the scientists don't know, so why should we do something? That's one of the issues with climate change, of course. But all scientists, they have this habit of disagreeing with each other. So it takes a really lot of effort to get one voice out of the scientists. And you, you see with this International Panel on Climate Change, they have really tried to speak more in one voice. And then finally, the policymakers accepted that something really is happening because this panel is now an authority in its field. So there something good happened. But this tendency of scientists always saying what my neighbor is saying is not right Scientists should work more together, I think. That's something I really learned over time. And I also learned that this competition, this fighting, it doesn't help. So sometimes people blame me for being too kind of not being too outspoken enough or not being too forceful. Partly that's me, but it's also a deliberate strategy nowadays. My strategy is to sit next to people and say, what can I do for you? How can I help you? Instead of saying you have to and to push them. You can people forced to do things, but it doesn't help. So that's a bit of my baseline nowadays. First, I want to say that your conclusion there is very much in line with what I think our philosophy is on Join the Dots trying to help people understand the trade-offs and different aspects of something, but recognizing that the choice depends on people's own personal situation and trade-offs are not scientific, they're normative or societal. Having done academic science, advising policy, this idea that scientists always want to argue, but this is part of the system, isn't it? If they're yeah. going to get grants and if yeah. they're going to get published, they're rewarded and promoted based on visibility and controversy, aren't they? Yeah. There's not a lot of incentive for consensus building no. within academic science. And that's a pity because it gives a lot of confusion. I mean, how can a policymaker figure out what he or she needs to do if the 10 scientific advisors have 10 different opinions? 
There's a growing movement within CTAC, our, the society where we've met, and in a lot of other scientific societies to better understand scientific communication yeah. and translation where we go from what we can measure as scientists and start linking that to what we want to achieve as a society. We've brought up coronavirus and the policy science interface yeah. has been particularly fraught because it's so public and because science is happening as we speak. Yeah. But I see there's the science denialism and the distortion of science, but there's also sort of a fetishization of science and talking about politicians obeying science. But that's not realistic either, is it? Scientists are supposed to inform, hopefully, as you say, with a clear articulation of uncertainty, the potential consequences of various alternatives. And then society or politicians are supposed to make decisions. This idea that scientists or science makes decisions is a false one, isn't it? It certainly is. I mean, I don't know how it is in the UK where you are situated, but in the Netherlands, this whole corona crisis is, uh, I mean, it's awful. But at the same time, it's from a scientific point of view, a scientific study about how science is used and communicated, it's really wonderful. I mean, in the beginning, our prime minister said, we are going to do what the scientists say. And nowadays you see that sometimes the, the government decides something which is against scientific advice just because the public wants it. We had a big debate about when to reopen the shops. And uh, we have a, a scientific team. They give on a weekly basis almost advice to the government about the situation and what to do and what not to do. And this team said, well, it's too early to open the shops, but it was impossible not to do something for the public because they started to disobey, they started to ignore the basic rules, they are fed up. Yeah, and then a politician has to decide whether, well, they know that scaling down certain measures will mean that we have more infections and maybe more uh, hospital admissions and more people dying. Yeah, this balance, that's strictly for the politicians. And that's a very big responsibility. There have been some terrible and wonderful lessons about science communication. Yep. And we're going to need to step back and see what we can learn going forward. Yes, yeah, certainly. And at the same time, I hope not to experience such an experiment again. <laughs> but people argue that this is almost a dress rehearsal for climate change, yeah. which is just a much more substantial but slower moving catastrophe. Living in a country which is more than half below sea level. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> oh, that, yes. <laughs> so I, I, I worry about that. There are different opinions about that. Some people say that in the end, lack of money to take the measures to keep us safe will be the wall that will turn everything. Because once we can't afford anymore to build higher dikes or better delta works or whatever then we have to do something. And then you must hope that we have enough time to do what we need to do. But I don't think it will be in my lifetime, so I worry for my children. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, your country more than most exists due to massive management and engineering. So I've found in my experience on various other policies often the equation is different on how aggressively you manage or intervene in processes when the very existence of your country depends on it. Yeah. At the same time, because we put dikes along the rivers and we have this big uh, delta works at the end of the estuary, this means that what I said in the beginning, how soil is formed, is that every year you get new sediment out of higher countries that reinforce, so to speak, your own country. But we ended that process by the dikes and all those works. So it means that the benefits we cut from the mountains, this ecosystem services, so to speak, is gone. So the heightening of our own country to keep it above sea level is ended. If you look at it on a large scale, so sometimes I like to tease people and say, well, we have to get rid of this delta works and we have to remove the dikes. But <laughs> I mean, you can't do that. This brings us back to a key theme that's reflected in your career path as well. It's all connected. And how you look at systems to make the right decisions needs to be an ever-expanding scope. And all choices have consequences. And society has to decide how to prioritize that. And that's sort of what you help them do. Thank you very much. Thank you for allowing me to talk about myself. Actually, I don't really like that, but (laughs) (laughs) I hope it is interesting for the listeners. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the rest of the team. Neil McEwen on sound and music. If you enjoyed this, look out for our upcoming episodes and all other info on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. Thank you.